0: I promise you now when it comes to when when for us with the negotiation like we were we were literally adding like PE points to our deal based on the fact that we had a strong brand.
1: Welcome to the pinch where we share real stories of businesses navigating the ever changing legal environment and learn how you can leverage the law to avoid landing up in a legal pinch of your own. Because when it comes to the law and business you don't know you're in a pinch until it's too late today we have with us in the studio, Craig Rodney, formerly of Cerebra Communications and currently of PitchSM, David Jacks. Hi guys.
0: How's it? Hello. I? And the voice of reason.
1: And not forgetting the voice of reason, the ever-present voice of reason with us again. So in today's episode we're going to be talking about what we call the David and Goliath syndrome. We've just coined that phrase, so if you can't Google it and you don't come up with anything, that's why you have to listen to the rest of this podcast. So essentially, Craig has been in a business that was bought out, and David has been the owner of a business that has bought another business. So we're going to explore all the eventualities around buying and selling your business or parts thereof. To start off, I think we should talk about what David's perspective is as a buyer of a business um, and what we wanted to really highlight here is risk mitigation. So how did you go about buying the business? What were the key elements that you took out of this whole purchase process, apart from Natalie and Lucy being key?
2: Thanks, Natalie. Absolutely key, let me tell you. So, what what we we, we started off the year looking around at different acquisitions to purchase. So, we started a business that does sales and marketing alignment, and what we needed to do was to find businesses that could align with us, first of all, culturally, second of all, obviously, making profit, and third of all, that could help us execute what we needed to do in terms of digital marketing and we came across a business that we liked and uh, we decided to purchase it but we we didn't we didn't have the time or or resources to do an absolutely full due diligence so in order to mitigate our risk we did we did two major things. The first thing we did was we, we we spent time with the staff, making sure the values were right, which I think is a huge part. Um, and once we ticked that box, then we looked at uh, actually the risk of the business. So what we, we thought was quite a clever solution to do was to add in in what we are calling or we coined Lucy's term was is the variance. Well, what we basically do is we look at um, we look at the current turnover and we, we put like a base price, and any time the 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 turnover would rise, or decline more than ten percent of this of, of that price. Therefore, the client the the, the purchase price would, would go up and down. And we decided we're only going to pay over twenty four months, and um and they accepted this deal. And it's been a lifesaver for us. Really, it's been an amazing because you know there have been months where where the company did great and we paid an extra, which we were very happy to do and there have been months where the turnover dropped dramatically and we're happy not to pay any more. So that was one of our major, major findings in terms of risk.
1: Right, David, I think that's quite an interesting point that you make there, that you've amortized this over a period of 24 months. I know Lucy was really heavily involved in this transaction. Lucy, can you say, shed some more light on exactly how this mechanism played out? Um, yes. So basically how it works is we, we
3: because we didn't do a thorough due diligence, we looked at the turnover and we pegged the purchase price at, at a number based on the current turnover. But as it was a business that we weren't absolutely 100% sure of, we knew that there's a possibility that there could be a drop in the turnover as soon as the, the sellers removed themselves. Because it wasn't an earn out situation where the sellers were remaining involved in the business and had still a stake in the business. They were basically selling the whole thing lock stock and barrel. So in order to prevent any loss or to kind of put any guest try and prevent any guest situation in this deal, we decided to peg the number on the turnover. So as David mentioned, when the turnover that was initially agreed upon rose, more of the um, a, a higher purchase price was paid on that particular month. If it went down, a lower percentage of the purchase price was paid. So as David mentioned, that was a lifesaver for them because there's been a number of months where the turnover was dramatically less than what was initially pegged at and what was shown to be the value of the business.
1: So it's actually saved them a lot of money. And also, David mentioned, which I think is really a prominent thing, and this will happen in more often than not, is that it was a deal where time was of the essence, really. So I think most business owners are in a situation where they – They have the opportunity to take what seems like a really good deal and time is of the essence. So you don't want to go and find heavy duty lawyers and auditors to undertake a complete due diligence where you're probably not even sure what that whole process entails. And I think the whole idea of it is quite daunting. So you want to move quickly. So for our listeners, what would be the takeout of a time is of the essence situation where you want to do the best possible job not necessarily get get all legally and accounting heavy, but want to protect yourself. Dave, what do you think?
2: Well, okay. So the first the first lesson I definitely learned was, um, you know, if you do something out of desperation, you get desperate. Mm-hmm. And uh, we 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 realised that you know there was there was there was the deal on the table, and we had to we had to go along with it. Um, so the problem is that we you know in terms of of timing. Um, I mean, my, my best answer would be, you know, delay it as much as you possibly can. If you physically can't, yeah, then you've got to become creative in terms of the actual deal. And that's what you guys did. That's what we did. That's where we were.
1: And I think exactly part of that creativity around the deal-making process would be to use an MOU. An MOU is a... Loosely thrown around term, I know lots of guys in the creative industry always want an MOU, specifically a one-page MOU that they think will solve a lot of problems. But there is a time and a place for it. Um, But an MOU traditionally is a non-binding document, but it will lay out, especially in this circumstance, it will lay out what the salient points of the deal are to lock both parties in, the buyer and the seller, so that you can undertake the process of a due diligence or an audit and work out the finer details, but it is a commitment to each other to to continue with the deal, should certain things fall into place. So that maybe gives our listeners a a good idea of what an MOU is and when would be an appropriate time to use it, because in my experience, it is usually um, utilised in incorrect circumstances. But uh, yeah, Luce, do you have anything to add on that?
3: Um, No, I think to add on to that from what David has said with the risk mitigation, another key thing to do, especially if time is of the essence, is to have a look at all the agreements that the particular entity that you're buying has in place with their clients, with their service providers, with their landlord, to make sure that, for instance, if they have got clients uh, agreements with their clients, what the termination clause says. So if they're able to terminate immediately, that may be a problem and it may affect the price because it's really a risk that you're taking. You don't know if those clients are going to remain with you. It's a totally new entity. The, the sellers are removing themselves completely. Um, it's a risk. So it's a good idea to have all your ducks in a row as far as possible, regardless of time, and make sure that you know exactly what you're buying, what clients are committed, what clients can be um, done away with, what, cl- what, what the termination clause is for a lease agreement, what the, what the employ- employment agreements are like, what the employee files are like, um, how the employees have been treated, so that you know what you're taking on.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, we did a, we did a five-year deal uh, five year earnout and um, when we sold to wPP and it was interesting listening to David to speak about the risk mitigation and saying that the the two owner you did the deal and the two owners were, were free to leave for me that would be the single biggest risk right it's um, you would assume that those two were the guys who built the relationships with the clients etc Um uh, and when we did our deal, that was that was one of the biggest risk areas for WPP was that we were going to stay within the that we would stay within the business. Um, but practically, the, the the advantage of doing an earnout for for the buyer is that you get to create a, a joint incentive. So where David was saying, you know, when when they did well, you paid them more money, and when they did badly, you pay them less money. You, as a buyer, you'd always rather pay more money. Because at the end of the day, i'd much rather get a, a, a i'd rather pay more and get a a, a a upward trajectory business a business that's growing, even if I have to pay a bit of a premium it, I know that it's heading in the right direction um, the cost of doing an acquisition uh, on any business is, is going to be really high, so you definitely don't want you, you're definitely not scoring when you're paying when you're paying less because the business is doing badly that that that's worrying, right um and so 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 when we did our deal we were we were we did it on a five-year deal, and the idea was that we stuck around and we grew this business as aggressively as we possibly could because the the more we were able to grow the business and the more profitable we were able to make it, the more money we made. But the model is pretty simple. I mean, you know, at the end of your earnout, you think you've done well after five years, and it probably takes – if the business has grown and done well, then as an owner, you do well. But it will still take WPP only two more years to pay off <laughs> – because they're paying you a vast majority of your money out of your own profits, and mm-hmm. then whatever they don't, whatever they have to chip in, gets will be covered in the next two years. So it's a good deal for both parties on an earnout, and, and it worked very well for us.
3: Mm. What would you say the pitfalls have been with with your particular deal um, around retaining some of the shares um, and not having a complete buyout?
0: So, so we sold seventy five percent of the business, it, and it, it, interestingly, it wasn't it wasn 't actually by choice, you know the when we did the deal with WPP it was as you guys would remember a seven day it was a seven day deal We had a, we had a deal with another another global network agency that that had part, the MOU had lapsed and the, and everything had lapsed because they they hadn 't closed the deal and so when we got approached, we were able to do it. but the original deal that we had was for one hundred percent of the business, and when WPP came along. And they were interested. We said, "Well, listen, you've got to make it sweeter." So they offered us the same price for seventy five percent of the business, which, so we, we, which, which seemed like an amazing deal. We obviously took it. So, so we we retained twenty five percent of the business. You've lost control, so it's no longer your business, and you only really have one buyer for the remaining twenty five percent. So, so it doesn't it doesn't necessarily suit you in in certain respects. But in other respects, it does. So, so the pitfalls are that you only really have one buyer, um, and you don't really have any power within the business. So, so it, I think if we hadn't have got the same price that we'd originally been offered for a hundred for seventy five, we would have, we wouldn't probably wouldn't have taken it. Um, the fact that this we got the same money meant that the twenty five percent was free. So. It didn't really matter. The potential upside is that if you do grow the business aggressively, that after five years at twenty five percent can be worth almost as much as the original seventy five percent. If you're doing if you're mm-hmm. doing really good numbers, um, and if you are doing really well, then then while you only have one buyer, they will probably still be interested in acquiring that. Um, you know, because it's it's value to them. If they don't, you just claim dividends, mm-hmm. and dividends are also great. You know, every year uh, check hits your bank account, and you carry on. So so it's fine. Um, so so the only pitfall of just doing a 75% deal Is one if it's really against your will That you that have to take a price cut Because a lot of acquirers will want to buy 75% To get, it, get majority control for a discount And they know that you're tied in anyway So, so it generally favours the acquirer But you can make it work for yourself
3: Yeah. Um, A couple of situations that we have seen, and and luckily you haven't come up against this um, with your particular deal, but often when a bigger group buys an entity, they will kind of strip the entity that they've bought of their clients, transfer everything into the group name and what have you. So essentially what they're doing is buying the 100% of the business for 75% of its value because once they've stripped everything out of the entity that they've bought, there's nothing left in yeah, it. there's nothing left. And yeah. then you're owning 25% of, of zero. So that is a big um, thing to think about if you are retaining shares in, in your business for our listeners um, to make sure that you, you've got a put clause option in your sale agreement so that you can force the acquirer to purchase the remainder of your shares if you see that kind of thing is happening or if you find that, you know what, being a minority shareholder, having no say in this business is not where I want to remain.
0: Yeah, there's a couple of things to consider within that, right? Um, you'll realise very quickly in your negotiations whether they're buying to strip you or whether they're buying to keep you. Um, and and the, you'll notice it because the, the conversations will be around the value of the brand. So so your PE, if you know what your industry average is, if, you're, if the PE that they're talking about is kind of... Low, on the low side it means that they don't see value in your brand that much they they're kind of they're just looking at the numbers they're looking at the assets and the employees and the clients and the contracts that they have and so on and so forth um so you'll know whether they're interested in paying a premium for the brand or not you'll know that quite early on in the conversations and we knew that our acquirers were very were were, were willing to pay a big premium for the fact that the company was cerebra because we had a really good brand. So we knew immediately that they had the intention of keeping us going as Cerebral because they're paying a lot of money for us to continue with that brand. Um, and that's, that kind of saved us. So that's, that's the first thing to consider. The second thing to consider is that even when you have that as an advantage, you still have to fight Right, you if if you want to keep your ind- independence and you want the value of your remaining shareholding to grow, then the entity that you're a shareholder of has to be able to win business and it has to be able to convert that business and and, and, and have that revenue realized on, on on your bank account type of thing. But but the moment they the moment they start shifting people around and they oh, are in the integration and integration's not a bad thing. I don't like you know, I mean before Mike and I did the deal, people were like, "Oh, it's going to be terrible! It's going to be terrible!" And it wasn't. Like we we had a really good time. It was it, it was great. But we were proactive around integrating with the parent company on our terms and in a way that that suited us. But we still had to fight to protect the fact that Cerebra, in it in and of itself, was a billable. Kind of entity, and we could win pitches and grow our grow our revenue.
3: Yeah, and grow that entity that you held shares in. I think that's key for our listeners.
0: Um, So, just what you're saying is like is
2: great. So, what we decided we didn't want to keep the owners, and we didn't. We actually wanted to take the business and put it into a completely different way of doing what we think is a different methodology. But we, we wanted the clientele to be able to leverage off our, our new methodology that we wanted in Cray. So I 100% agree with what you're saying in terms of keeping the business running as is, but we didn't want it to be. We changed the name straight away. We got rid of the owners. We changed all the, took all the legacy out of the business like almost immediately, and we've changed absolutely everything there was. So if you were looking at the business as a year ago to where it is today, you wouldn't recognize it. And I feel like... And that's when we, where our risks were, was that we, weren't, we wanted to make this massive, massive pivot and therefore we had to find another vehicle
0: in order to be able to watch our risk. No, so I think I actually think that, that you potentially got quite lucky that, that, that you were comfortable for the owners to exit and that you were, mm. you were happy with it because if you were looking at changing the business, if you are looking at changing the business around, then you, are, you didn't want them there because they would resist all forms of, of change So it's actually better mm-hmm. to, to bring them in I just want to ask When, when you guys did and, and I know you see You did it quite quick uh, Did you go through the, Their client contracts To say To see whether There was a, a Termination clause Linked to acquisition Because I remember Doing that with us It's yes. like It's like when they When the due diligence guys Flew, flew out from London they were all just going through these contracts, and most of our contracts we real, we signed them because you want the business. So you're like, you know, mm. you're an agency. You win a pitch. You're like, woohoo, you You'll sign anything, right? <laughs> um, and we realized that we'd signed contracts that's that stated that they could terminate if mm. we sold the business, and we never even. I mean, you don't even realize that, you know, but when you're looking at a deal, suddenly all of these things become like these flashing neon mm, lights.
3: Yeah. And that's that's something very key to making sure that your house is in order, especially if you want to sell, um, making sure that you've got agreements in place that, that bolster your business and make you more attractive to buy rather than making you less attractive to buy. For instance, having a clause that says that you, um, they can terminate on acquisition. Yeah.
0: David, do, do you know the guys that you acquired, were you the first acquisition talks for them? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, what happened was we were actually looking to do a merger of the two businesses and then we decided absolutely not. We didn't like a lot of what they were doing and we liked the way. So our whole idea is more around the sales and marketing alignment rather than being a digital agency. So um, it was just a for, like a, it was just really like a way to execute on our findings in terms of a marketing approach. So when they when they first came to us with the merger, we said absolutely not. Then they came back and said like okay, fine, take the whole business. And we like we looked at it and we decided the numbers weren't bad and there was obviously profit in the business. So we wouldn't have looked at it. But it was more important for us to take on the clients yep. so
0: that we would be able to then work out what we wanted to do. Yeah, because it was interesting with Cerebra because we, I mean, when we eventually did our deal, it it technically it was the third deal that we'd looked at. Oh, wow. um, the first one was probably back 2011, 2012. Um, and that fell through not because of us. It actually fell through because of the acquirer walked away from the deal. But when we, were, uh, two years later, when we started again with another potential acquirer, the... The, what we had learned and the the amount that we had changed our business between the first talks terminating and falling to pieces and when we started our second talks, it was probably 18 months to two years between those two, we fundamentally changed our business because we learned so much going through the first acquisition talks and if we'd done that deal like it was a bad deal, it was a really it was a really, really bad deal. Like or, or let me put it this way, it was an average deal. The deal we eventually did was, was phenomenal by comparison, right? But I, I attribute a lot of the a, a lot of the gains that we made in doing a really good deal when we eventually did it. To what we learned during those first acquisition talks, because we, you know, when you have guys from overseas walk in and sit in your boardroom and they just grill you and, grill you and grill you and grill you, and you don't have contracts with all your clients, and you don't have this, and you don't have, and you just, and you realize like your house isn't in order, you don't know anything, you don't know what people are trying to buy, um, and it was interesting because before we started recording. Um, Natalie said something about yours when when you're trying to buy, or when you're trying to sell. And I was like, it's not necessarily about when you're selling, it's about understanding what someone is trying to buy. And we didn't know that in the first deal. We didn't know what they wanted to buy. Mm. But we eventually realized what the guys wanted to buy. And then as soon as you know what they're after, you just pr- put pre- premium, you put premiums on all of that stuff. And when you do your presentations, like you highlight all of that stuff. But um, but I think if I had to give advice to anyone looking to do a deal, even if you do it almost like as a dummy thing, is is go through the entire process of what it would be to sell your business, and then potentially don't do the deal. I mean, if it's a phenomenal deal and you want it, then do it. But but if you want to be serious about selling your business, it can't be your first. It can't be your first boardroom session with an acquirer. The voice of reasons here. You mentioned, Craig, that you should have your house in order. What um, specifically does that mean? And I'd like to hear from you two and uh, Nats and Luz, what's the process? I mean, is getting your house in order, but
3: then if you're going to test whether your house is in fact in order, what's that process?
0: Do you know what I mean? The acquisitions process and what are the kind of legal must-haves or fundamentals that need to be in place so that if you know, Craig version 2.0 wants to sell a company again in the future that, you know, he has his house in order and in fact, it is a sellable business.
1: Well, that's exactly what I was going to lead us into. Thanks for of reason. But, um, um, I wanted to, to ask, and Lucy can maybe elaborate on this, because to, to discuss all of that, I think this would be an extremely long podcast, um, but we can probably delve into that in a, in a different episode. But just as sort of a highlights package, of, uh, I know you touched briefly on a termination clause in your contracts with your customers, so that's a big one. What other sort of standout elements or key contracts or key contract clauses should we be looking for? Well, first of all, I think the the
3: key is to have contracts in place because... Quite right. (laughs) That's a big one. It's very rare. It's very
0: rare and
3: and it's very key because specifically if the purchaser is wanting to acquire you because of the the clients that you have, if you don't have any contracts in place, obviously the, the value to those clients goes down because they're not
1: no one's secured
3: they're not committed to you they can terminate at any time and often clients would like to knee-jerk reaction if they can if it's a new acquirer because they're not sure what they're going to get they don't know if things are going to change and it might also be an opportunity for them to go for a cheaper pitch if they wanted to so it's very important to start out with having a proper contract in place so that you know that the value that you have if it's around your clients for instance is secured and and your clients are committed um, similarly, around this, if you if you if you've got a service provider that maybe provides a key part of the service offering that you eventually pass on to your clients, that agreement is also very very important. Specifically, with um, agencies, for instance, seeing as we have two agencies here, um, if they use a lot of freelancers and and things like that, it's very key that the IP is correctly transferred. Um, to the actual entity and that the freelancer isn't retaining that that IP because then the value sits with the freelancer and not with the business. So it's all those types of things that need to be um,
1: catered for. And to clarify, freelancer, um, what what we've experienced is not just the guy that's freelancing, it's also other agencies. Agencies use other agencies. That's we, We're using that under the, the umbrella of freelancer. So as Lucy's saying, just to um, distill the point, is that you want to make sure your IP or that of your client, however it's framed, is protected. And more than often, it's not.
3: Yeah. And it certainly won't be if there's no agreements in place. So Mm -hmm. I think to make your business a solid and attractive business, whether you're selling or if you're just trying to um, project your growth and, and grow as a business, to have solid agreements in place right from a governance setup around how you work with your fellow shareholders and directors right through to how you're working with your clients and service providers is paramount. Yeah.
2: So, so there's two, two other things that I would also like when you're talking about getting your house in order. The first thing which we've struggled with since we purchased is um, like login details and email addresses for, you know, all of your channels. I tell you something, it has been hell to try and work out. So the next agency we buy we're going to make sure that we have those upfront in the contract before we start anything, But which just absolutely been hell. The second thing was a couple of years ago I sold a business um, and one of the things I was so desperate to sell, I couldn't wait to get this deal done. They offered me way more than I thought the business was worth. It was actually funny, we were making like a loss and they offered us like a million, it was crazy. So we decided to sell and we signed over everything, but we didn't sign over the sureties, and two, three years down the line, we were still fighting with banks and service and credit people around our like we having surety on a business, and uh, it was a very it, it it could have been way worse than it was, but I think that's something else to be keep in mind.
0: Yeah, I mean, so so when 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 we went through our deal, what we realized is is. And again, if you if you're getting your house, this house and order thing, you know, so you got to look at your clients and what are your client contracts. What, how, what are the termination clauses? Also, what are the renewal processes? Right, like like which clients do you have to re-pitch on? Which clients mm-hmm. can you just re-sign? Um, what are the escalation? you know is there a price escalation at a, at a specific point in time you know because otherwise you could have the same client but revenue just stays flat over yeah, a period and that makes you more time. attractive
1: if you've got automatic yeah. escalation so if you've
0: got automatic escalation if you've got automatic renewals and all that kind of stuff then that contract becomes more valuable to an acquirer um your what is your employee retention strategy and and when you know it's one of the things that you never look at when you're this when you're a smaller growing agency because it's just not important like it really isn't important until you sit down in a potential yeah. acquisition talk and you're just cursing yourself under your breath because they're going, well. If we acquire you, how do we know that your top guys are going to stay? And then you realize you have no bonus structure, no this, no that. May not even et have employment contracts. Now, you often don't have employment mm-hmm. contracts. You know, a lot, you know, a lot of your key employees, as, as Natalie as you said, are, are actually freelancers. Like and they're like, okay, well, they, they're not even legally kind of tied to this business. So, you know, you to look at your client contracts, your employee contracts. And how do you retain both of those? Um, the one thing that you don't really have to worry about as much as you think you do is profit, um, which is kind of weird, like mm. um, you know you worry about profit off if, if you're in an earnout like we are, you worry about profit afterwards. you know you've got to know that you've got to know that you can that you can hit your margins, but before you acquire you should be you should be growing the business right um, but the, the uh, it, and it's weird and it's, it, but then the fourth thing for me, and it's one that a lot of agencies overlook is is the value of brand. Like when I promise you now, when it comes to when when for us with the negotiation, like we were we were literally adding like PE, PE points to our deal based on the fact that we had a strong brand, the fact that everyone out in the in the in, in the industry knew who we were, the top clients, even guys who didn't use us knew who we were, and the value for that, strangely, is that the acquirer knows that you will always be invited into pitches. You know, so if a, if a big brand goes out to pitch, you will be one of the top five guys that gets invited to pitch you, and and they know that it makes it easier to, to win new business. It makes it easier to attract talent. There's, there's so many good things that come from having a really strong brand, and and we made a lot of, I and mean, it 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 paid off in the end. Our investment in our brand.
1: So that's interesting that you you say that, and this is something that I can pose to both of you because what I've taken out of what you've both said is really around this brand idea. Um, Even though David said that in his acquisition, they sort of did away with the existing brand, he was brand loyal to the brand that they wanted to create. And Craig, in your situation, you were loyal and like you had a bigger idea for the brand that already existed. But in both situations, you both had a clear picture of the business and where you wanted to steer the business to. And I I think that's key, that you've both been really, had an acute awareness of your brand and your strategy. Do you agree?
0: Yeah, but I also think that like if even if Dave, if David had acquired Cerebra and didn't want to keep the brand, I would have made him pay for the brand.
1: Yeah, sure. Like even
0: if he's going to discard it, it doesn't matter. But the the reality is, even if he was going to do away with that brand, it still has massive value. Because but what you do is instead of just doing a name change like immediately, like you'd have to do, like you'd have to do plan it out over time and go like, hey, how do we how do we how, how, do, do, we, we how do we market to the it? market? Yeah. So how, how do we take the best values of? The, the brand that we're acquiring and how do we evolve those and, and mold those into this new brand that we're creating so that so that it supports and adds value to this new entity that we're creating. But either which way, if your acquirer is going to keep your brand or is going to discard it, either which way they're going to pay for it, yeah. which means you should have it because it's literally another line item on your Yeah, it's on, the, on your, your goodwill and your, your reputation. Yeah. yeah,
1: for sure. I think I've been through that where I used to work if I can say the name. But we went through various name evolutions we were in association with. Then we lost this name. Then we got taken over by this one. And it was always so-and-so in association with. And it's it's now changed names so many times that it has... There's no reference to where I started my articles and completed them. But <laughs> thanks, guys. You were so great. It was really cool to have you here. What we've really taken out of this is that you need to know what you're buying and you also need to know what you're selling and know your value and what value you're prepared to pay for. This has been great. We've got some ideas for future episodes and maybe we'll have you back. <laughs> cool.
0: Thank you.
2: Thanks guys, thanks, guys.
1: Thank you. Thanks. So if you're in a legal pinch of your own and would like some practical and professional legal advice. Check us out at conciliumlegal.co.za or drop us a line at info at conciliumlegal.co.za